Chapter thirty one, part four of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter thirty one Invasion of Italy, Occupation of Territories by Barbarians, part four. At the distance of fourteen centuries, we may be satisfied with relating the military exploits of the conquerors of Rome, without presuming to investigate the motives of their political conduct. In the midst of his apparent prosperity, Alaric was conscious, perhaps, of some secret weakness, some internal defect, or perhaps the moderation which he displayed was intended only to deceive and disarm the easy credulity of the ministers of Honorius. The king of the Goths repeatedly declared that it was his desire to be considered as the friend of peace and of the Romans. Three senators, at his earnest request, were sent ambassadors to the court of Ravenna to solicit the exchange of hostages and the conclusion of the treaty. And the proposals which he more clearly expressed during the course of the negotiations, could only inspire a doubt of his sincerity, as they might seem inadequate to the state of his fortune. The barbarian still aspired to the rank of master-general of the armies of the West. He stipulated an annual subsidy of corn and money, and he chose the provinces of Dalmatia, Noricum, and Venetia for the state of his new kingdom which would have commanded the important communication between Italy and the Danube. If these modest terms should be rejected, Alaric showed a disposition to relinquish his pecuniary demands, and even to content himself with the possession of Noricum, an exhausted and impoverished country, perpetually exposed to the inroads of the barbarians of Germany. But the hopes of peace were disappointed by the weak obstinacy, or interested views, of the minister Olympius. Without listening to the salutary remonstrations of the Senate, he dismissed their ambassadors under the conduct of a military escort, too numerous for a retinue of honour, and too feeble for any army of defence. Six thousand Dalmatians, the flower of the imperial legions, were ordered to march from Ravenna to Rome, through an open country which was occupied by the formidable myriads of the barbarians. These brave legionnaires, encompassed and betrayed, fell a sacrifice to the ministerial folly. Their general, Valens, with a hundred soldiers, escaped from the field of battle, and one of the ambassadors, who could no longer claim the protection of the law of nations, was obliged to purchase his freedom with a ransom of thirty thousand pieces of gold. Yet Alaric, instead of resenting this act of impotent hostility, immediately renewed his proposals of peace, and the second embassy of the Roman Senate, which derived weight and dignity from the presence of Innocent, bishop of the city, was guarded from the dangers of the road by a detachment of Gothic soldiers. Olympius might have continued to insult the just resentment of a people who loudly accused him as the author of the public calamities but his power was undermined by the secret intrigues of the palace. The favourite eunuchs transferred the government of Honorius and the empire to Jovius, 
the praetorian prefect, an unworthy servant, who did not atone, by the merit of his personal attachment, for the errors and misfortunes of his administration. The exile or escape of the guilty Olympius reserved him for more vicissitudes of fortune. He experienced the adventures of an obscure and wandering life. He rose again to power. He fell a second time into disgrace. His ears were cut off. He expired under the lash, and his ignominious death afforded a great spectacle to the friends of Stilicho. After the removal of Olympius, whose character was deeply tainted with religious fanaticism, the pagans and heretics were delivered from the impolitic prescription, which excluded them from the dignities of the state. The brave Genarid, a soldier of barbarian origin, who still adhered to the worship of his ancestors, had been obliged to lay aside the military belt. And though he was repeatedly assured by the emperor himself, that laws were not made for persons of his rank or merit, he refused to accept any partial dispensation, and preserved his honourable disgrace, till he had exhorted a general act of justice from the distress of the Roman government. The conduct of Generid, in the important station to which he was promoted or restored, of master-general of Dalmatia, Pannonia, Noricum, and Raetia, seemed to revive the discipline and spirit of the Republic. From a life of idleness and want, his troops were soon habituated to severe exercise and plentiful subsistence, and his private generosity often supplied the rewards, which were denied by the avarice or poverty of the court of Ravenna. The valour of Genarid, formidable to the adjacent barbarians, was the firmest bulwark of the Illyrian frontier, and his vigilant care assisted the empire with a reinforcement of ten thousand Huns who arrived on the confines of Italy, attended by such a convoy of provisions, and such a numerous train of sheep and oxen, as might have been sufficient, not only for the march of an army, but for the settlement of a colony. But the court and councils of Honorius still remained a scene of weakness and distraction, of corruption and anarchy. Instigated by the prefect Jovius, the guards rose in furious mutiny, and demanded the heads of two generals, and of the two principal eunuchs. The generals, under a perfidious promise of safety, were sent on shipboard and privately executed, while the favour of the eunuchs procured them a mild and secure exile at Milan and Constantinople. Eusebius the eunuch, and the barbarian Alibish, "'succeeded to the command of the bedchamber and of the guards. "'And the mutual jealousy of these subordinate ministers "'was the cause of their mutual destruction. "'By the insolent order of the Count of the Domestics, "'the great chamberlain was shamefully beaten to death with sticks "'before the eyes of the astonished Emperor. "'And the subsequent assassination of Alibish, "'in the midst of a public procession, "'is the only circumstance of his life, in which Honorius discovered the faintest symptom of courage or resentment. Yet, before they fell, Eusebius and Alibish had contributed their part to the ruin of the empire, by opposing the conclusion of a treaty which Jovius, from a selfish and perhaps a criminal motive, had negotiated with Alaric, in a personal interview under the walls of Ramini. 
during the absence of jovius the emperor was persuaded to assume a lofty tone of inflexible dignity such as neither his situation nor his character could enable him to support and a letter signed with the name of honorius was immediately dispatched to the praetorian prefect granting him a free permission to dispose of the public money but sternly refusing to prostitute the military honours of rome to the proud demands of a barbarian this letter was imprudently communicated to alaric himself and the goth who in the whole transaction had behaved with temper and decency expressed in the most outrageous language his lively sense of the insult so wantonly offered to his person and to his nation the conference of ramini was hastily interrupted and the prefect jovius on his return to ravenna was compelled to adopt and even to encourage the fashionable opinions of the court by his advice and example the principal officers of the state and army were obliged to swear that without listening in any circumstances to any conditions of peace they would still preserve in perpetual and implacable war against the enemy of the republic this rash engagement opposed an insuperable bar to all future negotiation the ministers of honorius were heard to declare that if they had only invoked the name of the deity they would consult the public safety and trust their souls to the mercy of heaven but they had sworn by the sacred head of the emperor himself they had touched in solemn ceremony that august seat of majesty and wisdom and the violation of their oath would expose them to the temporal penalties of sacrilege and rebellion while the emperor and his court enjoyed with solemn pride the security of the marches and fortifications of ravenna they abandoned rome almost without defence to the resentment of alaric yet such was the moderation which he still preserved or affected that as he moved with his army along the flaminian way he successively dispatched the bishops of the towns of italy to reiterate his offers of peace and to conjure the emperor that he would save the city and its inhabitants from hostile fire and the sword of the barbarians these impending calamities were however averted not indeed by the wisdom of honorius but by the prudence or humanity of the gothic king who employed a milder though not less effectual method of conquest instead of assaulting the capital he successfully directed his efforts against the port of ostia one of the boldest and most stupendous works of roman magnificence the accidents to which the precarious substance of the city was continually exposed in a winter navigation and an open road had suggested to the genius of the first caesar the useful design which was executed under the reign of claudius the artificial moles which formed the narrow entrance advanced far into the sea and firmly repelled the fury of the waves while the largest vessels securely rode at anchor within three deep and capacious basins which received the northern branch of the tiber about two miles from the ancient colony of ostia the roman port insensibly swelled to the size of an episcopal city where the corn of africa was deposited in spacious granaries for the use of the capital as soon as alaric was in possession of that important place he summoned the city to surrender at discretion 
and his demands were enforced by the positive declaration that a refusal, or even a delay, should be instantly followed by the destruction of the magazines, on which the life of the Roman people depended. The clamours of that people, and the terror of famine, subdued the pride of the Senate. They listened, without reluctance, to the proposal of placing a new emperor on the throne of the unworthy Honorius, and the suffrage of the Gothic conqueror bestowed the purple on Attalus, prefect of the city. The grateful monarch immediately acknowledged his protector as master-general of the armies of the West. Adolphus, with the rank of the Count of the Domestics, obtained the custody of the person of Attalus, and the two hostile nations seemed to be united in the closest bands of friendship and alliance. The gates of the city were thrown open, and to the new emperor of the Romans, encompassed on every side by the Gothic arms, was conducted in tumultuous procession, to the palace of Augustus and Trajan. After he had distributed the civil and military dignities among his favourites and followers, Attalus convened an assembly of the Senate, before whom, in a format and florid speech, he asserted his resolution of restoring the majesty of the Republic, and of uniting the empire of the provinces of Egypt and the East, which had once acknowledged the sovereignty of Rome. Such extravagant promises inspired every reasonable citizen with a just contempt for the character of an unwarlike usurper, whose elevation was the deepest and most ignominious wound which the Republic had yet sustained from the insolence of the barbarians. But the populace, with their usual levity, applauded the change of masters. The public discontent was favourable to the rival of Honorius, and the sectaries, oppressed by his persecuting edicts, expected some degree of countenance, or at least of toleration, from a prince, who, in his native country of Ionia, had been educated in the pagan superstition, and who had since received the sacrament of baptism from the hands of an Arian bishop. The first days of the reign of Attalus were fair and prosperous. An officer of confidence was sent with an inconsiderable body of troops, to secure the obedience of Africa. The greatest part of Italy submitted to the terror of the Gothic powers. And though the city of Bologna made a vigorous and effectual resistance, the people of Milan, dissatisfied perhaps with the absence of Honorius, accepted, with loud acclamations, the choice of the Roman Senate. At the head of a formidable army, Alaric conducted his royal captive almost to the gates of Ravenna, and a solemn embassy of the principal ministers of Jovius, the Praetorian prefect, of Valens, master of the cavalry and infantry, of the Quester Botamius, and of Julian, the first of the notaries, was introduced with martial pomp into the Gothic camp. In the name of their sovereign they consented to acknowledge the lawful election of his competitor, and to divide the provinces of Italy and the West between the two emperors. Their proposals were rejected with disdain, and the refusal was aggravated by the insulting clemency of Attalus, who condescended to promise that, if Honorius would instantly resign the purple, he should be permitted to pass the remainder of his life in the peaceful exile of some remote island. So desperate indeed did the situation of the son of Theodosius appear, 
to those who were the best acquainted with his strength and resources, that Jovius and Valens, his minister and his general, betrayed their trust, infamously deserting the sinking cause of their benefactor, and devoted their treacherous allegiance to the service of a more fortunate rival. Astonished by such examples of domestic treason, Honorius trembled at the approach of every servant, at the arrival of every messenger. He dreaded the secret enemies who might lurk in his capital, his palace, his bedchamber, and some ships lay ready in the harbour of Ravenna, to transport the abdicated monarch to the dominions of his infant nephew, the Emperor of the East. But there is a providence, such at least was the opinion of the historian Procopius, that watches over innocence and folly, and the pretensions of Honorius to its peculiar care cannot reasonably be disputed. At the moment when his despair, incapable of any wise or manly resolution, meditated in shameful flight, a seasonable reinforcement of four thousand veterans unexpectedly landed in the port of Ravenna. To those valiant strangers, whose fidelity had not been corrupted by the factions of the court, he committed the walls and gates of the city, and the slumbers of the emperor were no longer disturbed by the apprehensions of imminent and internal danger. The favourable intelligence which was received from Africa suddenly changed the opinions of men, and the state of public affairs. The troops and officers whom Attalus had sent into that province were defeated and slain, and the active zeal of Heraclean maintained his own allegiance and that of his people. The faithful court of Africa transmitted a large sum of money which fixed the attachment of the imperial guards, and his vigilance in preventing the exportation of corn and oil introduced famine, tumult and discontent into the walls of Rome. The failure of the African expedition was the source of mutual complaint and recrimination in the party of Attalus, and the mind of his protector was insensibly alienated from the interest of a prince, who wanted a spirit to command, or dulcity to obey. The most imprudent measures were adopted, without the knowledge, or against the advice of Alaric, and the obstinate refusal of the senate, to allow, in the embarkation, the mixture even of five hundred Goths, betrayed a superstition and distrustful temper, which, in their situation, was neither generous nor prudent. The resentment of the Gothic king was exasperated by the malicious arts of Jovius, who had been raised to the rank of patrician, and who afterwards excused his double perfidy by declaring, without a blush, that he had only seemed to abandon the service of Honorius, more effectually to ruin the cause of the usurper. In a large plain near Ramini, and in the presence of an innumerable multitude of Romans and barbarians, the wretched Attalus was publicly despoiled of the diadem and purple, and those ensigns of royalty were sent by Alaric, as the pledge of peace and friendship, to the son of Theodosius. The officers who returned to their duty were reinstated in their employments, and even the merit of a tardy repentance was graciously allowed. But the degraded emperor of the Romans, desirous of life, and insensible of disgrace, implored the permission of following the Gothic camp, 
in the train of a haughty and capricious barbarian. The degradation of Attalus removed the only real obstacle to the conclusion of the peace, and Alaric advanced within three miles of Ravenna to press the irresolution of the imperial ministers, whose insolence soon returned with the return of fortune. His indignation was kindled by the report that a rival chieftain, that Sarius, the personal enemy of Adolphus, and the hereditary foe of the house of Balti, had been received into the palace. At the head of three hundred followers, that fearless barbarian immediately sallied from the gates of Ravenna, surprised and cut in pieces a considerable body of the Goths, re-entered the city in triumph, and was permitted to insult his adversary by the voice of a herald, who publicly declared that the guilt of Alaric had forever excluded him from the friendship and alliance of the emperor. The crime and folly of the court of Ravenna was excapated a third time by the calamities of Rome. The king of the Goths, who no longer dissembled his appetite for plunder and revenge, appeared in arms under the walls of the capital, and the trembling senate, without any hopes of relief, prepared, by a desperate resistance, to defray the ruin of their country. But they were unable to guard against the secret conspiracy of their slaves and domestics, who, either from birth or interest, were attached to the cause of the enemy. At the hour of midnight, the Salarian gate was silently opened, and the inhabitants were awaked by the tremendous sound of the Gothic trumpet. Eleven hundred and sixty-three years after the foundation of Rome, the imperial city, which had subdued and civilized so considerable a part of mankind, was delivered to the licentious fury of the tribes of Germany and Scythia. The proclamations of Alaric, when he forced his entrance into a vanquished city, discovered, however, some regard for the laws of humanity and religion. He encouraged his troops boldly to seize the rewards of valour, and to enrich themselves with the spoils of a wealthy and effeminate people. But he exhorted them, at the same time, to spare the lives of the unresisting citizens, and to respect the churches of the apostles, St. Peter and St. Paul, as holy and inviolable sanctuaries. Amidst the horrors of a nocturnal tumult, several of the Christian Goths displayed the fervour of a recent conversion, and some instances of their uncommon piety and moderation are related, and perhaps adorned, by the zeal of ecclesiastical writers. While the barbarians roamed through the city in quest of prey, the humble dwelling of an aged virgin, who had devoted her life to the service of the altar, was forced open by one of the powerful Goths. He immediately demanded, though in civil language, all the gold and silver in her possession, and was astonished at the readiness with which she conducted him to a splendid hoard of massy plate, of the richest materials, and the most curious workmanship. The barbarian viewed with wonder and delight this valuable acquisition, till he was interrupted by a serious admonition, addressed to him in the following words. These, said she, are the consecrated vessels belonging to St. Peter. If you presume to touch them, the sacrilegious deed will remain on your conscience. For my part, I dare not keep what I am unable to defend. The Gothic captain, struck with reverential awe, 
dispatched a messenger to inform the king of the treasure which he had discovered, and received a promptary order from Alaric that all consecrated plates and ornaments should be transported without damage or delay to the church of the apostle. From the extremity, perhaps, of the Quirinal Hill, to the distant quarter of the Vatican, a numerous detachment of Goths, marching in order of battle through the principal streets, protected with glittering arms the long train of their devout companions, who bore aloft on their heads the sacred vessels of gold and silver, and to the martial shouts of the barbarians were mingled with the sounds of religious psalmody. From all the adjacent houses a crowd of Christians hastened to join this edifying procession, and a multitude of fugitives, without distinction of age or rank or even of sect, had the good fortune to escape to the secure and hospitable sanctuary of the Vatican. The learned work concerning the city of God was professedly composed by St. Augustine to justify the ways of providence in the destruction of the Roman greatness. He celebrates with peculiar satisfaction this memorable triumph of Christ, and insults his adversaries by challenging them to produce some similar example of a town taken by storm, in which the fabulous gods of antiquity had been able to protect either themselves or their deluded votaries. In the sack of Rome, some rare and extraordinary examples of barbarian virtue have been deservedly applauded. But the holy precincts of the Vatican and the apostolic churches could receive a very small proportion of the Roman people. Many thousand warriors, more especially of the Huns, who served under the standard of Alaric, were strangers to the name, or at least to the faith, of Christ. And we may suspect, without any breach of charity or candour, that in the hour of savage licence, when every passion was inflamed and every restraint was removed, the precepts of the gospel seldom influenced the behaviour of the Gothic Christians. The writers, the best disposed to exaggerate their clemency, have freely confessed that a cruel slaughter was made of the Romans, and that the streets of the city were filled with dead bodies, which remained without burial during the general consternation. The despair of the citizens was sometimes converted into fury, and whenever the barbarians were provoked by opposition, they extended the promiscuous massacre to the feeble, the innocent, and the helpless. The private revenge of forty thousand slaves was exercised without pity or remorse, and the ignominious lashes which they had formerly received were washed away in the blood of the guilty or obnoxious families. The matrons and virgins of Rome were exposed to injuries more dreadful in the apprehension of chastity than death itself, and the ecclesiastical historian has selected an example of female virtue for the admiration of future ages. A Roman lady, of singular beauty and orthodox faith, had excited the impatient desires of a young Goth, who, according to the sagacious remark of Zosman, was attached to the Arian heresy. Exasperated by her obstinate resistance, he drew his sword, and, with the anger of a lover, slightly wounded her neck. The bleeding heroine still continued to brave his resentment and to repel his love, till the ravisher desisted from his unveiling efforts 
respectfully conducted her to the sanctuary of the Vatican, and gave six pieces of gold to the guards of the church, on condition that they should restore her involatile to the arms of her husband. Such instances of courage and generosity were not extremely common. The brutal soldiers satisfied their sensual appetites, without consulting either the inclination or the duties of their female captives. And a nice question of casuistry was seriously agitated. Whether those tender victims, who had inflexibly refused their consent to the violation which they sustained, had lost, by their misfortune, the glorious crown of virginity. There were other losses, indeed, of a more substantial kind and more general concern. It cannot be presumed, were at all times capable of perpetrating such amorous outrages, and the want of youth or beauty or chastity protected the greatest part of the Roman women from the danger of a rape. But avarice is an insatiate and universal passion, since the enjoyment of almost every object that can afford pleasure to the different tastes and tempers of mankind may be procured by the possession of wealth. In the pillage of Rome, a just preference was given to gold and jewels, which contained the greatest value in the smallest compass and weight. But, after these portable riches had been removed, by the more diligent robbers, the palaces of Rome were rudely stripped of their splendid and costly furniture. The sideboards of massy plate, and the variegated wardrobes of silk and purple, were irregularly piled in the wagons, that always followed the march of a Gothic army. The most exquisite works of art were roughly handled or wantonly destroyed. Many a statue was melted for the sake of the precious materials, and many a vase in the division of the spoil was shivered into fragments by the stroke of a battle-axe. The acquisition of riches served only to stimulate the avarice of the rapacious barbarians, who proceeded, by threats, by blows, and by tortures, to force from their prisoners the confession of hidden treasures. Visible splendour and expense were alleged as the proof of a plentiful fortune. The appearance of poverty was imputed to a parsimonious disposition, and the obstinacy of some misers, who endured the most cruel torments before they would discover the secret of their affection, was fatal to many unhappy wretches, who expired under the lash, for refusing to reveal their imaginary treasures. The edifices of Rome, though the damage had been much exaggerated, received some injury from the violence of the Goths. At their entrance through the Salarian Gate, they fired the adjacent houses to guide their march, and distract the attention of the citizens. The flames, which encountered no obstacle in the disorder of the night, consumed many private and public buildings, and the ruins of the palace of Sallust remained, in the age of Justinian, a stately monument to the Gothic conflagration. Yet a contemporary historian has observed that fire could scarcely consume the enormous beams of solid brass, and that the strength of man was insufficient to subvert the foundations of ancient structures. Some truth may possibly be concealed in his devout assertion that the wrath of heaven supplied the imperfections of hostile rage, and that the proud forum of Rome, decorated with the statues of so many gods and heroes, was levelled in the dust by the stroke of lightning. End of chapter 31, part 4